that's okay. Our speaker this week is Joe from Texas. Um, when I heard her share a couple weeks ago at this meeting, um, she reminded me of the old school sobriety I grew up in, and it it made my heart happy. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to you, darling. Welcome. Thank you so much, Megan. I appreciate it. Um, uh, my name's Jyoti. I'm an alcoholic. Um, it's been a few years of saying that. My brain, I think, probably took a while to accept it. But today, I strongly believe it. And uh, I hope that uh, something from my story helps somebody else, you know. So let's, I'll start from the beginning. I was born in India and uh, I had never heard of alcohol, never seen it, never seen anyone drinking it around me, anything. You know, I was never exposed to it. The only time I think I saw it was in movies and uh, it didn't really make any impact on me that somebody's drinking a glass of wine or whatever in the movie. I didn't think, give it much thought. Uh, and I was born in a family where my dad was an atheist. My mom was a Hindu and they put me and my sister in a Catholic convent boarding school with nuns. You know, we used to live there and come home for summers. So I was never exposed to anything. And not alcohol, not drugs, not not cursing, nothing. I mean, it was a very protected environment. Um, we had 25 foot tall concrete walls with five foot high barbed wire. And we never knew what was happening outside the convent. Um, and, you know, um, once I graduated high school, then I, was at home for a while before I went off to college. Um, and, you know, um, growing up with this mixed view of religion kind of kept me really open-minded about different points of view. Besides my household having different views, the entire country of India is, I don't know, 50 different religions. Everybody's very tolerant of each other. Like when it was Christmas, we'd go to a Christian family's house with presents and have dinner. When it's Diwali, they'd come to ours. When it's uh, Ramadan, we'd go to a Muslim friend's. And my dad had also a bunch of atheist friends. So it religion really was very broad concept in my head. Um, when I graduated college with a degree in architecture, you know, um, they, I had an arranged marriage and my husband was, uh, well, he didn't have any particular belief either. And we, um, he got transferred to Los Angeles, California. And I didn't want to come to US, but you know, he was an Indian husband. You do what they tell you, or you know, you face some form of abuse. So very reluctantly I moved over here. Um, also, I I I have to mention a little bit about my childhood. 
it was um, for whatever reason, and I'm not going to ever understand why, but in my family, my dad was always traveling and my mom took care of me and my brother and sister. She was a teacher. She used to teach uh, geography and uh, Marathi, which is a traditional language. For whatever reason, she was very abusive to me. Uh, she wasn't to my brother and sister. And I, I have never figured out why, which kind of set a pattern where my brother and sister also were abusive because they learn, you know, kids learn from their parents how to treat someone. And every day of my life since, I don't know, my earliest memory was maybe five years old. She used to tell me, you're good for nothing. You'll amount to nothing. I wish you were dead the day you were born. She was physically, emotionally abusive. Um, I mean, just in every way. And that, I just wanted to bring that up because that what, what kids hear as children is what sets in your mind. So I always grew up thinking I was good for nothing and I, and I was a bad person. And I never had any friends, never could make friends. Uh, I don't, I've never had friends in my whole life. And I am 57 years, 56. Well, next month will be 57. And I've never had friends. So that tells you uh, a little bit about how deep that impact of what I used to hear had on me. And um, when I moved to US with my husband, um, we stayed in LA, then Chicago, then Florida, and um, I had got pregnant and had a baby. And as soon as I had a baby, um, he wasn't getting the same attention he was before the baby, I suppose. That's the only thing I can think of. He left us. He abandoned me in Florida with no job, no money, no friends, no family, just gone. It was the hardest part I had to deal with. It was so difficult. I couldn't tell my, I couldn't even tell my parents in India that I'm divorced because in India, it's a huge scandal. It used to be, I think things have changed now, but when I was raised in India, I didn't know a single divorced person. Well, let me take that back. There was one divorced woman in our town. And when she walked down the street, people would point to her and, and gossip. Oh, my God, she's divorced. Like she's a murderer or something. You know, so I, I knew it would be a huge scandal. So I didn't even tell my parents, you know. I just struggled so much. And I think I went through a mental breakdown. I didn't know back then what it was. Um, then I got a job after a lot of struggling. I got a good job in a Fortune 500 company. I'm sorry about this cat. Um, I got a job in a good company and um, I was working. And uh, there was a group in that company that went to happy hour on Wednesdays. And when you're young and cute, you know, you get invited to all the different 
shenanigans going on. So these people, these it was a bunch of dudes. I don't think there was any women in the group. But they kept telling me, come to happy hour, come to happy hour. So I finally went and I was drinking Diet Coke. And they said, oh, why aren't you drinking? I said, I don't know. I've never drank, don't know nothing about it. They said, well, why don't you try a glass of wine? And I was like, okay. And it tastes, first sip I took, it tasted, they ordered me a red wine. It tasted disgusting. Uh, but I was so lonely, you know, I couldn't talk to my family. I had no friends. I had a little baby. I worked all day and then, you know, uh, took care of the baby. All night. I, I was a mom 24 seven. His dad never took him. He had no grandparents or anyone. So I didn't even, I didn't get even an hour off from him. And uh, it was very stressful and lonely. So I started hanging out with this group that there were actually really heavy drinkers, which back then I didn't know. And then I was dating one of the guys and all the other people in the office kept telling me, don't go out with this guy, he's an alcoholic, which meant nothing to me because I didn't drink and I didn't know what alcohol is or alcoholic is. But I learned to drink from heavy drinkers. I never need, learned social drinking. That's the only thing I knew how to do, uh, how to drink. And it's the only way I, I had friends. If I didn't drink, I wouldn't even have those friends, you know. Um, and so I started hanging out with them. Finally, this alcoholic person I was dating was very abusive. And I always have associated abuse with love because that's how I grew up as a child. So I used to think, you know, he abuses me because he loves me. And he convinced me that nobody else was ever going to be want to be with me because I was such a horrible person, which fit into the narrative that I already tell myself. And... I could not, finally I realized I need to get away from him if I want to stay alive. I had a son too, you know. So I left, I moved from Florida to South Texas uh, as offered a job there. And, and I told all the people, my friends, do not tell him where I am. But someone must have told him where I am. So he showed up in South Texas as living out in the country with no neighbors. I always live out in the country. I like isolating. So um, he showed up, broke into my house, beat the crap out of me, almost killed me. I, I escaped and I ran for like a mile found a neighbor and called the cops. By then he had stolen all my credit cards, money, car, everything, and disappeared. By the time the cops showed up to the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it, I got so, um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't even know what I felt. I felt so depressed and I started drinking again. I mean, <clears throat> uh, my drinking got bad at that point. 
uh, and you know, I was like, I didn't know what to do. I finally, sorry. So I called my parents. I think it, and I told them that I'm divorced. In this, and they, um, my dad, I uh, asked me to come to India. This is the dad I hadn't talked to for ten years, you know. So I flew to India, and the minute I got off the plane, he knew something was very wrong with me. So right from the airport. They call, uh, he uh, took me to an ash, put me in an ashram in the mountains. They didn't even let me unpack because they were afraid I'd, I wouldn't go. And uh, this ashram is up on the mountains, no TV, no radio, no nothing. You just stay there for seven days. You can have different treatments. I had the seven day treatment where. Um, all, all your meals are uh, organic, home-cooked, vegetarian, uh, no salt, no uh, grease, no sugar diet. And they have a bunch of spa treatments. And you wake up, you do some meditation and yoga, you eat breakfast, then you do some educational classes. Then you eat lunch, you get a couple hours off, then you go to after that, you go do some spa treatments. They had mud baths and this and that. And then at night, you do another yoga class with meditation. You eat your dinner and you go to bed. That was a routine. And it was, I can't tell you how great that was. It was so rejuvenating for my tired, depressed mind. Um, I don't know what it did, but it did kind of a mental reset for me. Um, and I came out of there feeling 10 years younger. I had no desire to drink. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the way I used to be, you know. Uh, I have a type A personality. I have to constantly be doing something, achieving something. So. I came back to the U.S. and I and I started working and feeling great and doing all the things I was supposed to be doing. And um, then, you know, I was I didn't drink for like two years. And then my dad passed away. And I I he I we had kind of rekindled uh, our dad daughter relationship and we were had grown really close in that two-year time and then he passed away and then the loneliness came back again you know the way I used to feel before and the only way I knew how to make friends was to drink so I went back to the bar and didn't realize but he passed away in August I think I drank September, October, yeah, two months. And I realized that this is bad. It was really bad. I was worse than I was drinking before. And the only way I had tried everything and the only way I knew how to stop was going to A. And that was my last drink I had. 
I walked into the uh, rooms IA on November 4, 2004. And I was desperate. That was my bottom. I just knew if I couldn't stop now, I would never stop. And, and my, you know, my son had no one but me. And, and, you know, I was like, if I, something happens to me, he's going to be, um, my, his dad would never take care of him. He would end up being a, in a foster care or something. And I walked into a rooms as desperate. I was having so many health problems. I was having panic attacks, anxiety, all that stuff. And I walked in the rooms, my hands used to shake. My, I could not pay attention to anything people were saying because my brain was racing. And I just... I had nowhere else to go. In fact, the where I got sober in Fort Myers, Florida is a A clubhouse named Yana. They are some hardcore uh, programs. If you have less than a year, you're not even allowed to share. You're just supposed to shut up and listen. They, they used to say, take the cotton balls out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Um, if somebody came back and said they relapsed, the old timers would say, if you want to relapse, there's the door, you know, that kind of thing. They had no sympathy, nothing for any anybody and you know, excuses. There were some people who'd come in and share and they'd brag about, uh, I'm the president of so-and-so and they'd say, hey, why don't you put your resume on that attack board so we don't have to listen to this every single time you share <laughs> it was you couldn't get away with nothing in that group and that's where I got sober and I'm grateful they were so hardcore and maybe that's what I needed I don't know but I needed a kick in my pants to realize that there is no way I'm ever going to be a cucumber again. I was a pickle. That's it. I and I can't do one drink, half drink, one sip, nothing. You know. So, um, I started after some time. My hand stopped. They told me to do ninety meetings in ninety days, and I did. And my, I know this is secular meeting. I'm not. I'm not a big. God person or anything, but I do have my meditation and spirituality that I follow. But I I got sober in a traditional AMA meetings, and uh, they told me to do ninety meetings in ninety days, which I did. My hands stopped shaking, my brain stopped racing. I um, started seeing some changes in me that made me realize that this is good for me. And during those 90 days, I tried hard to find a sponsor. They kept telling me, you have to find a sponsor. You have Anytime I heard a woman sharing that I liked her share, I'd walk up and ask her to be my sponsor. And I think I must say in the 90 days, I must have asked at least 20 women. Nobody would be my sponsor. And, uh, you know, I, I think, and I could be wrong, they had something to do with racism. Doesn't matter. 
you know, uh, after 90 days, I was sitting in the porch before a meeting and uh, talking to a couple of ladies and I was saying, you know, I've tried, nobody will sponsor me. And one of the ladies said, I'll sponsor you. And that was, I was like, oh, awesome. And I was so happy. And I can't tell you, she was the best sponsor I could have ever look for she was wonderful she didn't talk much but when she spoke it was worth listening she put took me through the steps um and we both kind of admired each other even um even though uh, she didn't know a lot about me over the years we became so like friends and uh you know, I am a nerd, always been good with uh, um, studying and taking tests and whatever. And she was after we during when when the whole uh, sponsor sponsor relationship, she was trying to um, do some classes and she needed help with calculus. And she said, "Can you help me? I've been trying. I can't get through this." So I did, you know, and then she helped me with the A part. I helped her with math, you know, that sort of thing. But it was great. I loved her, but she was a smoker and she eventually got cancer. And by that time, I was in New York when she got cancer. I did get to see her when I was uh, visiting Florida, but um, she passed away while I was in New York. And that left another big void in me. I'm telling you, um, it, it, I had the same feeling as when my dad passed away. But I knew I was, gonna, I was not going to drink. I ran to an AA meeting the day I got that news. And there was only two people in that meeting. And I shared what I was going through and the two guys sitting there, they said, you know, keep coming back. You know, this is life and people come in your life and people leave. There's no uh, way to figure out why. So um, at that time, I was working on contracts. So I would universities would hire me on contract to come to a building for them. This kitten is driving me crazy, sorry. Um, uh, and, and once the contract's over, I'd find another contract. So I was moving a lot. And then I moved to Oregon and then University of Washington in Seattle. So I did a lot of contracts at universities. And when I was in Oregon and Washington, I didn't go to any meetings. I went to one or two. I didn't like them, so I stopped going. And that's a bad idea because now an alcoholic is like me is left with my own thoughts, no sponsor. She passed away, no meetings. So whatever thoughts came in my head were what I was acting on. I had nobody to check, run them by and see if they are alcoholic thinking or not, you know. Um, 
I'm sure people, all of us here are aware of this, but if you're not, we alcoholics have a problem with thinking. Uh, we don't think like other people. We ha I had uh, mental obsessions. I had, uh, I'd start thinking of something and then it would multiply and then it would seem like that's the right thing to do and I'd go ahead and do it. And that's what we call in A as a self-will run riot, you know, where my way is the right way and everybody else is wrong. So I did that for like six years. I was in the Pacific Northwest, just running around, doing whatever the heck I want. Even though I wasn't drinking, I was having the same results as I as I did when I was drinking, as ruining personal relationships, as ruining uh, uh, professional relationships. I was just self-will run riot for six years. And, and then, and when I was in Seattle, um, another was, uh, crazy thing I did while I was in Seattle was at the age of, I think, 50, I took, decided I wanted to learn jujitsu. And then I started getting into all these scrambles where one of them tore my knee, tore my ACL, MCL, and meniscus. And I was laid up in bed for six months. Now, that was worse than the rest of my six years because now I'm in bed, I'm not even busy and my brain's racing and all that kind of stuff going on. Couldn't do anything. How much TV can you watch? So, um, and like I said, I've never had friends. So I wasn't like talking to friends either. <clears throat> so I decided um, Seattle's, I couldn't afford any, uh, buy a house or anything in Seattle. So I thought, uh, I always like Texas. I'm going to move back. So I quit my job and moved back to Texas. And uh, then I, while I was working here and I was working in government. So Port Lavaca is a real small city. Its population is like 12,000, I think. And I couldn't attend local A meetings because I'm there's a stigma attached to being an alcoholic. You know, I just knew that working in government, already having a target on my back, if I went to a local meeting, um, uh, and the information got out that I'm a recovering alcoholic, that would be just really bad for me. So. Uh, I didn't go to any meetings until COVID happened and then the whole Zoom thing started. That was just great for me. I mean, not the COVID, but the Zoom meetings because then I could start attending A meetings all over the place. I didn't have to attend local meetings. And uh, so I started going to meetings again. And... Um, you know what, the difference between sobriety while attending meetings and sobriety while not attending meetings, which I call a dry drunk, 
are complete polar opposites. I, when I do meetings, I am centered. My thinking is centered from listening to other people share, from uh, identifying with other people's shares. Uh, I just stop being that selfish, self-centered, egoistic, self-will run riot person that I become when I'm not doing meetings. It's, I, and this is just my belief. I, you know, I believe these are like, for me, they are like, almost like self-hypnosis, you know, but when I hear the message over and over and over in meetings about what happens to alcoholics who don't go to meetings or, who don't uh, practice the principles like unselfishness, love, compassion, honesty, integrity, uh, all those things, humility, all those things that are the principles of A, when we don't follow it, what happens to an alcoholic? You know, I need to hear it. I need to be reminded of it every day. It doesn't matter how many years I got, because I count only from the time I woke up. Well, usually I wake up at 6 a.m., but I woke up at 5.30 because this kitten won't let me sleep. So I have half hour more sobriety than I did yesterday, maybe. But doesn't matter. Although every, this is a 24-hour program, the 24 hours I had when I first came into the program were very different compared to the 24 hours I have now. I have the, uh, the one thing I look for my whole life, I have found it in a, I want it to feel like a healthy, mentally healthy, functioning person in society. And I never felt that way. I always felt like something was wrong with me. And everybody hates me. And I'm an unlovable person. And all those things. And when I came in A and they said, we will love you until you learn to love yourself. I was like, what are they talking about? Love myself. What is that? And today I understand it. You know, I am not perfect by any means, but I don't think I'm a piece of crap. I don't think I'm a bad person anymore. I don't think I'm unlovable. I have practiced loving myself. And the only way I can love myself is to allow myself to make mistakes. I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes. Just because I made a mistake, I'm not a horrible person. I made a mistake. That's all it means. And that's what I learned in a how to make amends to people when I do make a mistake. Not carry it around in my head and keep saying, oh, you're so stupid. Why do you do that? You know, the way I talk, used to talk to myself. I don't talk to myself that way anymore. I love me with all my flaws. I will never be perfect. I have never been perfect and I'll never be perfect, but I can still love me and I can love all the people in the rooms that also have flaws just like me. 
You know, I have, you know, they say human beings are tribal, but I've never belonged to any group. I've never, I can't, there's a bunch of Indians in, in Texas. The, I've never felt comfortable there. I've never felt comfortable uh, in US. I've never felt comfortable in India. I never felt comfortable in Holland or France. I just was uncomfortable because it was a problem with me, not with the people around me. It is my problem. And the way to um, finally be okay with that is to learn that who I am and just love the person I am. It doesn't matter how many flaws I have. I still deserve to be compassionate to myself. If I can be compassionate to somebody else, I can be compassionate to me. And doing the steps four through nine and making amends and confronting people um, with what the wrongs I did um, and the uh, compassion I received in return where people forgave me um, has taught me that this program works, you know, if I can do so many things wrong as a drunk and, and people can still forgive me, I need to forgive myself too. And I need to love myself. So I, those things have learned through A. And if it hadn't been for A, I would have never felt, sorry, my cat. Um, I would have never learned uh, how to do that. And I would have never found the my peace of mind that I had been searching for my whole life. I no longer have a racing brain. I no longer have a brain telling me I'm a piece of crap. I no longer have to stay awake at night or take some chemical to fall asleep because I found peace and all the money in the world couldn't have bought me this level of peace. And, you know, it's all I have. I love you guys. Um, I hope somebody got a message out of this. Thank you so much for inviting me.